oxygen in them off. The whole thing? It's fine. You want me to read the whole thing? Okay. Alright. Read the whole thing. So therefore, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Let me make sure you guys just saw the first Timothy, right? Okay. I haven't been here in a month, so I'm just like, you guys want to sing Timothy's Alright. Alright. The king and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. For this is it. this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all, to be testified in due time, which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am speaking the truth in Christ, and not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting, in like manner also, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women possessing godliness and good works. Let a woman learn in silence with all submission, and do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived. But the woman, being deceived, fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they can, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness for something good. Did you say several billion? Yeah. yeah. Only about 170 million. In Brazil. Only. Only. I don't know all of them, though, so. Alright. Uh, in chapter 2, um, he starts out uh, requesting what? Prayers. Prayers. Um, for whom? All men. All men. Now, that seems to me to be kind of the theme of this section. And we'll see that as we go through this. Concern for everyone. As opposed to sort of an elitist concept of certain people we're concerned about and other people maybe we're not. A Christian cares about everyone. And prays for them in various ways. Entreaties, prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings. How important does Paul see prayer for others as being? What does he call it? It shows you importance. First of all. First of all. This is the most important thing. Is that the way we look at that? Think about, say, a church's priorities. How many churches would put prayer as top priority in their activity? Now, I don't know why it shouldn't be, because which will do more good? Praying for someone 
or doing things yourself to help them. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't do what you can to help them. You know, God would want us to do that. And, uh, you know, that's that's an appropriate thing. But more, more helpful than that would be praying. <laughs> do we believe that? But the announcements would help them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, you know, I mean, the truth probably is in some churches the announcements gets more attention than the prayers. You know, maybe we spend more time with the announcements than we do the prayers. That would be sad. And uh, so I, I think just the fact that Paul is really concerned about this shows something about how Paul sees priorities. Now, he specifically requested prayers for who? Kings. Kings and other authority figures. Who was the king when Paul wrote 1 Timothy? Which Caesar? That wasn't a Caesar. Anybody know? Yeah. Vespasian? No. This was before Vespasian. You all know. Who? Nero. Nero, yeah. Now, would you pray for Nero? (laughs) Well, that's what Paul says to do. (laughs) Of course, in the world of their day, they mostly prayed to the emperor. (laughs) Uh, This is praying for the emperor, but uh, (laughs) we should pray for the political leaders and the governmental officials uh, why? He says we may lead a quiet peaceful life well that's nice isn't it we all want quiet peaceful lives that you know are comfortable and don't have a lot of trauma associated with them is that why he wants peaceful, tranquil lives? I would think he's talking about without persecution. Well, why do we want it? Why do we want? Why do we pray that there won't be persecution in this context? that's the point. Look at what he says. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, and it facilitates the preaching of the gospel when conditions are more peaceful. You know, it's more difficult to preach and teach effectively in war-torn areas in areas of great persecution where you can't speak openly about the Lord. His point here is not pray for the government so you have a really nice, peaceful, comfortable life in your own suburban, you know, home. He's saying pray for this so that the gospel can be spread better because after all, this is what God wants and what God wants ought to be our highest priority. What is it that God wants? He wants all men to be saved. 
that's something that God cares about so much. And for them to be saved, what will they have to do? Come to the knowledge of the truth. Exactly. That's the only way you'll be saved. You don't know the truth. You can't can't be saved. And again, relate that back to verse 2. You can spread the truth more easily in peaceful, tranquil circumstances. And so because God wants everybody to be saved by knowing the truth, pray for the governmental leaders that the conditions will facilitate the progress of the gospel. Does that make sense? And, you know, think about emphasizing your mind the idea that what God desires is what we want. If we know God wants it, we want it too. Because we love it. So God wants all men to be saved. That's what we want. And we'll sacrifice ourselves to try to help, you know, pursue that goal. Comments and questions through verse 4. Well... In bringing men to salvation, what role does Jesus have? He's the mediator. Why did why did why was a mediator needed? You usually use a mediator under what conditions? You know, if uh, there's a labor dispute between, you know, the workers and the management, you bring in a mediator to arbitrate the dispute. So, why was Jesus needed as a mediator between God and man? What had happened? He was broken down the wall. Jesus had to mediate us because of the separation we created. By? Sin. Yeah, exactly. Our sins have created a big barrier, a big problem in the relationship, and Jesus is the mediator. Well, in what way did Jesus mediate between God and men? That's it. That's what he did. He paid the price. We had this huge debt of sin to God and Jesus paid off the debt by sacrificing his life in place of our life. That's the way in which he is the mediator between God and man. Notice, who did he give himself a ransom for? Do you see that theme in this passage? You know, prayers be made on behalf of all men, verse 1. For kings and all who are in authority, verse 2. Who desires all men to be saved, verse 4. Who gave himself as a ransom for all, verse 6. The allness of this text is the theme. God intends for all men to be saved. This is the, He has a universal focus. We are so often rather narrow in the way we look at it. Who do you want to be saved? Just Americans? Just friends? Just family members? Just people who are white middle class? You know, whatever? 
You know, I didn't look at it that way. Now, um, we think about mediator. This passage, I believe, is often misused. There might be other passages that could, in some sense, say something like this. But this passage, at least, should not be used to talk about Jesus in some way being a go-between between us and God now. Say when we pray, you know, Jesus has to take our prayers to God or something like that. At least in this passage, the sense in which he's a mediator is defined by the context as giving himself as a ransom for all. That's how he mediates. He gave his life and shed his blood to take away the barrier so that we could be brought into fellowship with God. Comments and questions through verse 6. What you're saying about having the mind of Christ, and you know, if I mean, he says that for things too, his mind being as all that we should want what Christ wants, you know, that our mind should be one with it. And I'm not saying we're be perfect like he was, but saying that his will should be our will, and understanding that sometimes his will is more superior than ours, and wanting that same thing. Perhaps the idea of testimony is that what Jesus did testifies as to God's desire for all men to be saved. He's the testimony to us of, of God's desire to save us. That There may be other possibilities, but that seems the best to me in the context. So, what he did to show God's desire to save man is to ransom himself and that that was the testimony at the right time that showed God's desire to save us and how to be saved. He almost, uh, it almost looks like he's defending himself in verse 7. I am speaking the truth. Is this my questioning? Good point. We have a, look, let's look at verse 7. For, for this I was appointed a preacher and apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Now, I think the connection here, alright, you've got God wanting all men to be saved. Now what does that take? Well, Jesus has to give his life as a ransom to save all men, but what else has to happen? How do we know about it? You know, if we're not informed of Jesus paying the price, then we will not ever come to Christ and be saved. So Paul's role is the role of announcing this ransom has been paid. The, the wall's been broken down. You can come to God now. Uh, it says that he was a preacher. But the word preacher here is not the word evangelist, bearer of good news. This is the word herald. You know what a herald does? Yells. Yeah. He announces, makes a proclamation. 
That's the way Paul sees himself, as a proclaimer, not a suggester, but a proclaimer. Not somebody to get people to think, but somebody to declare, to tell them what God has done. Not a diplomat, but somebody who just speaks the message. I love the idea of his being a herald. And an apostle. Now I think, Shane, that yes, evidently, in Ephesus, there were those questioning Paul's apostleship. Uh, we know from what we've seen even in chapter 1 there were these false teachers and probably Paul was a threat to them we know in other places his apostleship was challenged and uh, so he he says I'm telling the truth I'm not lying you know he is an apostle uh, and and he's also a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth now that's interesting because again that fits in with the universal scope of the passage Pray for all men because God desires all men to be saved because Jesus gave his life as a ransom for all and Paul's a preacher to all, even the Gentiles. It's against this narrow focus we just want salvation for me and mine. That's not how God sees that. I, I believe this would be an appropriate passage to give thought to when occasionally I hear people object and say, I don't know why people are going overseas and playing lost people around here, or whatever. You know, well, unfortunately there are a lot of lost people around here, some of which we probably haven't done our job in trying to reach, but God wants the lost people everywhere to hear. And God cares every bit as much about a lost African as a lost American. Sometimes we don't feel that. But God does. I mean, from the Lord's perspective, he's not American. <laughs> you know? He doesn't he doesn't he's not that way. I think we might think of him that way. But he's not. So Paul was he was once sent out. There were plenty of lost Jews too. But he was sent out to evangelize the Gentiles. What comments and questions there were seven? And I wondered whether this had, this people were questioning Paul's apostleship and as a subject from what he believed. I wondered that it spread. And it just it just blows my mind to think that some people even today are questioning whether Paul and other apostles were really who they said they were. And you know, I in school, the D V program I go by there's just, there's a course making for Bible doctrines. It's Bible Baptist Church, so there are some things that are way off. But that's I guess good practice for them anyway. Um, kind of way off. But other times they have some good they have some good points against some things that are said. And one of them was that one of the thoughts is that the disciples stole the body from the tomb. That Jesus didn't really resurrect. The reason Jesus' tomb is empty is because the disciples stole stole the body. One of the biggest arguments against that is I think is. These men died for a lie. Who would die for a lie? It's just, it would make your life worthless. And especially a lie that they didn't get any profit out of. Exactly. The, uh, <laughs> persecution. It, it, it made no sense. Why would they die? Why would they? Why would he sit here and lie to these people? It's not like he was making money off of them or getting profit. Or, like you said, there's. Why would? Why would I question that? There shouldn't be any question because there's no profit. 
kind of, if you didn't die, then we wouldn't even want to do this. It makes no sense. Yeah, it makes it difficult to uh, question at least that Paul believed what he was saying. When you look at all the evidence, he believed it. You might argue that he didn't know what he was talking about. But it's very difficult to uh, to look at Paul and say he was just a fraud. <laughs> Other thoughts and comments through verse 7? So would it be correct to say that Jesus mediated like only once, like when he died? And that still is the reason why we can go to God today. But he doesn't like continuously... Well, this passage does not deal with any continuous mediation. I think we can say that. Now, a passage like Hebrews 7.25 says he ever lives to make intercession for us. Exactly in what sense, I'm not sure. Maybe continuing to apply, apply the benefits of his blood to us. Maybe that's the idea. Um, maybe there's some sense in which he appeals to God on our behalf. That, I think, would be a more common idea from that passage. I don't know. But I don't think the Bible teaches that we pray through Jesus' office and he takes the prayers to God. And you've probably heard me say this before, but I, th- I think John 16.26 answers that. John 16.26 says, In that day you will ask in my name, And I do not say to you that I will request the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you've loved me and have believed that I came forth from the Father. It seems to me that he's specifically saying here, you're not going to have to tell me so I can ask the Father for you, because the Father loves you himself, you can go directly to him and talk to him. So when we pray in Jesus' name, I don't think we ought to mean... Well, I'm sending this through Jesus' office to forward it on. If if we're praying with understanding that we choose to say that, I think that ought to mean we're praying on the basis of the sacrifice Jesus offered for us. Okay. Other comments? about the spirit interceding is that I mean, that's not the same idea but it's a it's more of a, the spirit would be more of an inner assessor or a mediator in the idea of the prayer Romans 8:28 I think expressing our inexpressible thoughts to God in my understanding Did you read the whole chapter? Okay, good. Verse 8 is a transition verse. It's hard to say whether 8 belongs with what goes before or what goes after. I think the answer to both questions is yes. It goes back to what he says in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I want the man in every place to pray. And that picks up on this universalist idea again, every place. Uh, So he really has uh, pushed that. This is the word for men like the male of the species, not the word for men, mankind. And therefore, I think, is a reasonable text to appeal to, to suggest, at the very least, that under ordinary circumstances, 
God wants the man to wing the prayers. Depending on your view of 1 Corinthians 11, perhaps in some circumstances God would allow women to do that if, ha- if they were veiled. That's a debatable point. But at least in general, this passage, I think, indicates that God wants the man to, to lead the prayers. We would understand, in general, that God wants men to take the leadership roles and, and not women. But his point is not just that he wants it to be men leading the prayers. He, he wants three things. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Now, lifting up holy hands. Hands symbolize what? What you do. You do stuff with your hands. And so they symbolize your conduct. Your life. And they need to be holy. When you pray, you need to pray from a pure life. From a life that does what God wants you to do. Sin hinders prayer. And the guy who just persists in doing wrong things should not be praying. I might say that this, I believe, would be an argument for not calling upon a person living in sin to lead a prayer. If he doesn't have holy hands to lift up, then God, that wouldn't be one of the people God wanted to lead prayer in every place. And without wrath. Without uh, anger. You know, that's an emotion that surely hinders prayer. That's not a reverent type emotion. And without dissension, without quarreling. You know, ill will and, and conflict is a barrier to prayer. It even makes it, you know, if you've got people fussing and fighting in a church, it really seems kind of awkward to try to pray together. Do that. But this passage, that it kind of, you know, finalizes this idea of praying for all men, but it leads into the contrast between what he wants men to do, verse 8, and what he wants women to do, 9 to 15. So I, I see 8 as going both ways. Do you have comments and questions through it? So about the wrath, like you've talked before about how. God knows how we're feeling anyway, so you should go and talk to him about our feelings. So, why is that different? Well, we ought to do that. Uh, We ought not to be improperly wrathful. And somebody who's really angry is not the person to call on, is not the man to call on the leader prayer. So this is like more public? I think so. I think this is in every place the men are to, to take the lead on that. Certainly we need to tell God everything, but, you know, improper anger and quarreling we should not have. We ought to repent of that. Good question. Other thoughts? Well, he's got a lot to say to the women. In verses 9 and 10, what's he telling women? Exactly. Because that is inappropriate for the 
attitude and demeanor of a godly woman, which ought to be modest and discreet. God, God's ideal for women is not the bold, brassy, throw her weight around kind of a woman, or the woman who tries to make sure everybody notices her when she walks in the room. That's, I mean, that's kind of the modern idea. Make sure you, you know, I'm woman, watch me roar, what is that? That's an old song, but I'm not kind of the idea of that song. You know, I, you know, I'm somebody, you better listen up. No, that, that whole manner is inappropriate. And a woman can do that with the way she dresses. You know, kind of showy, you know, the elaborate hairdo, you know, the elaborate jewelry, the fancy, expensive clothing that makes her kind of the person that sort of stands out. That a woman, a godly woman, wouldn't want that. She stands out in a different way by good works, like a woman making a claim for godliness. She tries to, if she's going to catch somebody's attention, it's going to be by her good deeds, not by her extravagant outward appearance. It's probably a challenge for all of us who try to get attention in bad ways. You know? And probably a, a, a temptation to over consider the packaging instead of what's inside the person. You know? I mean, really, stop and think about it. How much emphasis do Americans pay to what they look like? Whoa! Do you have any idea? I have none. What kind of money is spent on personal appearance? Wow! I mean, clothing, jewelry, shoes, hair, makeup, tanning, etc. You know, I don't know what all is done. Manicure, pedicure, other cure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> anything else that needs cured? Uh, plastic surgery. Plastic surgery, that's a good point, yeah. Yeah, man. Liposuction, and, you know, I don't know. I mean, just trying to look better. He's not saying that we ought to just intentionally make ourselves look as haggard as possible. I don't think that's the point. You know, he said in Matthew 6, when you fast, you know, anoint your head, you know, look like you're normal. You know, don't go around drawing attention to the fact you're fasting. So we're not supposed to just draw attention to the fact, oh, I'm a Christian, I I, I, I look horrible. <laughs> but but it's like, that, that shouldn't be what we're thinking about. Why are we so concerned about what we look like? That's not really the emphasis as a Christian. And I think, this is an aside, and I've said it before, so we can turn it off for a moment, but I think how ridiculous and how shallow when you see uh, people, oh man, I want her. She really looks tough. Do the thing about it. Never saw her before in my but oh man, I want she's oh yeah, she must be she must be great. Wow. You know guys do that especially bad. And they just look how shallow they are. I mean, wow. 
You know you want a girl because you like her face or her other attributes or whatever. I mean, that's really stupid. And that, that's that's all we care about. You know, that's I think. Wow, we show we show ourselves by by even you know when we focus on that when we look at other people. Thoughts and comments. even more amazing I think the real question is not even more amazing is that how much emphasis we put on how, how good their character is to me that's even more important yeah. you know <laughs> yeah well yeah obviously in that scenario we didn't even know what their character was maybe didn't care I don't know yeah sure yeah but, so this is this is helpful and then he deals with uh, a, a, another aspect of a woman's attitude a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Um, I think those two passages sort of go together, those two verses. He says she must quietly receive instruction. He ends with she must remain quiet. She's to receive instruction, that is, she's not to teach. She's to do it with entire submissiveness, that is, not to exercise authority. I think those, there's kind of some corresponding terms in those verses. And it basically teaches women not to be in authority over men and to be submissive and quiet-spirited, not to be authoritative and taking um, control being in the roles of authority. A woman should not be in those roles. Now that's not popular today. And the most common dodge is that was because of the culture Paul was in. Perhaps that, you know, women were just looked at that way. Paul's just saying stick with the culture. Women, women weren't educated back then. They weren't capable of fulfilling those roles. Now it's different. Now women are well educated. They can be more capable than men. And uh, all that kind of stuff. And that's a really common approach people take. Which is a problem in general. Because if we start just looking at the Bible and saying, oh, that was just for that culture, that was just for then, well, virtually all the New Testament was addressed to somebody. Are we just going to write it all off? <laughs> um, but particularly, he will tell us in 13 and 14 the reasons he gives, and the reasons he gives have nothing to do with culture or education. They're based on the creation of the fall. In, in verse 13 that Adam was first created then, then Eve and so God showed by that he wanted the men to take priority that's not based upon the position women had in Paul's society that's based upon the way God made us and it was not Adam who was deceived but the woman being deceived fell into transgression I thought Adam sinned too No, I don't think so. I think Adam saw that Eve ate and she hadn't died. And so he thought that he could too. 
maybe. I'm not sure Adam was deceived, period. Do you have to be deceived to do wrong? Nope. You ever done wrong when you knew it was wrong? I think that's what Adam did. Eve, I think, believed the serpent. She really thought it'd be okay. It'd be, you know, she'd become wise and all that kind of stuff. I think Adam knew it was wrong. He did anyway. Now, there's some things to see in that. You can crucify me for this if you want to. But, it seems to me there is one sense in which this would show that women are not constituted by God so naturally for leadership. Women's strength is emotional nurture and support and compassion and those kinds of things. They are not best suited for leadership. I would say, in fact, women would be more naturally easier to deceive. Men probably more naturally rebellious and doing wrong even though they know it's wrong. Um, and, and, and look at it this way. In the relationship, in the garden, in this situation, Eve took the lead. She acted independently, she took initiative and disastered her. Because it violated the relationship. Instead of Adam being the leader, he became the leader and Adam the follower. And that didn't work well. When women, when the woman taught the man, all was well. So the way God made us, as confirmed by the fall, shows God wants men to take the leadership, not women. Well, that's probably what leads into uh, a zillion questions and comments. So, what do you want to say? Well, but amazingly, that has some negative connotation to it. <laughs> I mean, as if that's bad or good for one versus the other. You can equally say men are not as well suited to be nurturing as women. One up, is that good or bad? You know, is that a slam on men? Or are men supposed to now take offense at that? But we look at that different. And so it's it's just like, well, it's just different worlds. Maybe it goes back to our carnal desire to run it. Whoever gets to take the lead, whoever has control, is the winner. You know, the way it is in the kingdoms of men. The great one exercise authority. That's kind of the way we look at it. We've never really gotten well in our mind the whole ideal of the God who humbles himself and serves. And to me, what you see as the role God gives men is a responsibility, not a privilege. And when you take it, for example, in the home environment, when God tells men to be the head, they're to do it for their wives, putting her ahead of themselves and sacrificing themselves for her. Not, I get to have my own way. So, I think you're right, that the different roles of men and women are not a put-down. They are complementary. You need a nurturer, you need a leader. Thank God he gave both. It's really bad when you have one parent homes. Because how can one person be the authority figure and the nurturer at the same time? That doesn't work well. 
try to reverse those things. Yes, try to put round pegs in square holes. You know? <laughs> now, wait a minute, which one's which? Um, <laughs> uh, whichever, yeah. You can't do it well because women are not well suited for the leadership role, men are not well suited for the nurturing role, although in our society we're trying harder and harder to reverse all that. And that is not the way God made us. And we don't do well. You know, you may be able to get some sort of, I don't know, I don't know if this even makes sense, Chris would know, you may be able to get, you know, a Volvo transmission and put it in a Chevy, but it's probably not going to work nearly as well because it's not going to be designed for it. Maybe it wouldn't even work. Would it work? It wouldn't be designed for it. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a little bit of a, yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, there are women who are going to take off the, going to take the lead and they're going to run everything. It's not good. You know, it's not the way they're made. And there are men who try to become the, will be the nurturing half of this. I'm not saying they can't do anything. I'm just saying they don't fit as comfortably into those roles. When we've tried so hard to erase them, it becomes more difficult to see that. There are some really masculine women around and there are some really feminine men. I don't mean that in some sort of another kind of a way other than they don't want their roles. There are men who just don't want to leave. They want to nurture. Women who don't want to nurture, they want to leave. Because we've been trained wrong. And, you know, it just it doesn't work well. It's not a good thing. And even if you find the anomaly where one is suited better the other way, that doesn't justify saying, well, there you go. So I'm just going to go that direction. And, and God's clear about who's to do what. Yes. That's right. So. <clears throat> and... This is not the personal experience, by the way, but um, so I need to get that out straight. But I've seen and know that when you get, especially in a marriage, a man that wants to lead and a woman that wants to lead. It's not a real good thing, is it? No, but you know, it doesn't work that way. And it's not the way it was designed, but yet so many times in America, what are we doing? We're looking for something different. We want to be different. We want it. We want it. We want it have new things we can do, you know, want new roles. What do you do when you just bump it heads? What do you do when you both want to leave? Well, and, and in our culture, it's not politically correct to say any of this, so we have to totally ignore the obvious. I mean, you know, there are some obvious biological reasons why men aren't good mothers, you know? But it's like we ignore all facts and continue to try to make things the way they aren't. And, you know, well. Other is, questions? Is verse 15 open for comment yet? I haven't talked about it. <laughs> but I think the last two words there, do they not also apply back to this idea of not being the leader? It, Maybe so. Otherwise, what, what restraint you're to do all these things, continue with faith, love, sanity, with with self-restraint. Well, if it's okay to be the leader, then restrain what? Have it all. <laughs> no restraints. Okay, I hadn't thought about that, but that seems reasonable to me. And what, going back to, you know, addressing the, the women and men separately, 
I mean, obviously, there's some things that overlap. Uh, I don't know what the point, but I guess looking at when women are instructed to do themselves properly, modestly, taking the emphasis off of self, that would apply to men also. Is it, is it a little more there than don't let yourself be seen in that position or, you know, a man is going to be seen as a leader? Is that... Maybe somewhat. Uh, and maybe also there's more tendency for women to try to display themselves by what they were, how they fix themselves. But maybe so. Certainly, uh, the whole, whole, I don't know what you want to say, the whole aspect of a woman should be the meek and quiet spirit in 1 Peter 3. You know, she should not be the, the bold, brassy, deal-with-me kind of a person. You know, I have arrived, I am somebody, and you need to notice that. That, that is just not a biblical concept for how a woman's demeanor ought to be. And I think First Peter 3 is really helpful with that. Three and four, which she, her adorning needs to be the meek and quiet spirit. You know, and some women don't like that, they don't want that. But I don't see how to avoid that biblically. God knows more about that than what we do. It wasn't me that wrote that. I don't think it's a privilege for a man to lead. I think it's a responsibility. A man ought to want to exercise that responsibility. But I don't think it's so that he can get his own way. I don't think that's the idea. So what, how would you argue, or what would you say if someone were to say, I think it's wrong to break your hair? I'd say don't braid it, but it's probably not the point here. Um, it's pro- this is probably don't let your adorning be so much this, but that. Kind of a not but idea. Don't work for the food which perishes, but for that which endures. John 6.27. Not saying, he's not prohibiting work, he's just saying let it not be so much that. First Peter 3 does the same thing and said not be this and this and this and putting on dresses. <laughs> well, he didn't mean to wear a dress, but it meant you know, don't let that be the emphasis. So I suspect he's really not so much dealing specifically with saying they can't braid their hair, but that they shouldn't do something that draws attention to themselves. <coughs> I don't know. From what I've read, there were the Roman hairdos were extremely elaborate. You know, for us, just a simple braid in a hair does not draw attention normally. It may be a tasteful, normal thing to do. So I don't think he's trying to dictate a style. He's trying to say her way of dressing needs to be modest and discreet. And in this time, I don't think there's very many women that had gold and had the money to do this kind of stuff. What do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Well, that's what you do. I would think that there would be another reason to do it, just to draw attention to yourself. I think that's his point. Most women didn't have that kind of opportunity, I guess. I mean, most women today probably don't. Not anymore, I don't know. Don't wear a whole lot of gold and pearls, I don't know. Maybe also the idea that he mentions adorn yourself, and then he goes on to say adorn yourself by means of good works. So, in that context, you know, <laughs> how you put on good works. So I'm, I'm going to go to my closet and get out some good works to wear. So I think maybe that helps identify exactly what he's talking about the attitude of those things. Uh, that makes sense to me. 
So he doesn't lay down any um, limitations on the scope or the boundary of where this teaching applies. I agree with you. Okay. I've heard some suggest that perhaps that's implied, but you don't really see any such... That is the most common position. I can give you the reasons they give. They haven't convinced me. Um, verse 8, that this is dealing with them praying and sort of a spiritual context. And chapter 3, verse 15, this is how to behave in the household of God. I think those two passages would be used to try to say that chapters 2 and 3 are all dealing with kind of the behavior in the church. But I, I don't, we don't normally think of her clothing and her good works as being done at church. We certainly wouldn't see verse 15 as being primarily done in church. <laughs> uh, so so I, I don't see that's the point. And the reasons he gives are based upon the basic nature of men and women. Yes. Not something that would particularly be only applicable in a spiritual situation. I think it is applicable spiritually. Perhaps even the idea of teaching lends itself to the idea of the spiritual application. But... Uh, but it seems to me like this would apply to just the basic role of men and women. When I teach this, I teach there are passages that deal specifically with how a woman is to behave at church, First Corinthians 14, how she's to behave in the home, Ephesians 5, and so forth. Now she's to behave in general, First Corinthians 2. That's the way I see it. With that view, then, that has tremendous implications upon... Christian women today and the roles that they take on and so forth. I agree. I mean, I would disagree with what a lot of Christian women do. I mean, you know, Sandra, for example, works in customer service. There would be a somewhat of a chance your boss is getting older, somebody's going to have to take over. But there are men in the department. Sandra would not do that with men in the department. You know, because she wouldn't want to be the boss of men. I think, I think appropriately so. I think that would not be the right role for her to have. I recognize that a lot of people see that differently. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, withdraw fellowship from somebody over that. Uh, I understand there are, you know, question marks in the text, perhaps. I can see what they're saying. I just don't think it's right. Uh, everybody's going to have to judge for themselves, but, but it looks to me like these are universal rules. I miss a little bit of that, but what about his his reasoning going back to the beginning, more of a general... Exactly. Um, exactly. It wasn't exactly a worship service. <laughs> Absolutely. Where she was taking the lead. Yeah, exactly. Those reasons would apply to men and women in any role. It looks to me like. Um, yeah. I, I don't understand, other than our culture, why people have so commonly accepted the other view. I think, I think a large percentage of Christians I know would not agree with what you're saying. But uh, I don't think they've got as strong arguments as I do. I guess I won't vote for Hillary. I would not vote for a woman in that position. I was just going to say, Gary, does that mean you're going to vote for Hillary? <laughs> I do have a question. I might just not vote unless the Republicans can up, come up with somebody better than a couple of them that are running. Yeah, I might uh, vote for him. My dad actually knows him more. Really? He's a church of God, sir. No, not like a uh, Is it Todd Hobie? Is it 
Ferguson. Oh, that's right, that's right. But anyhow, go ahead. Anyway, uh, we're going to politics, I'm doing that. Anyway, um, see, I, I believe what you're saying about how this isn't talking about the church. How this, we don't have to think that this is just talking about inside the church. But somebody brought up a good argument to me that I couldn't exactly answer. This is in verse 8. Desire therefore that the men pray. And that's not talking about mankind, it's talking about men. Then they use the argument, well, if this isn't talking about in the church, then does that mean women can't pray? Because it says that the men pray. Well, my answer would be, I think there he's talking about like leading in prayer. And so I think men could not, uh, women should not lead in prayer in general. That'd be my answer. Okay. Other thoughts on all this? <clears throat> the quietness of verse 12. Quietness in the sense of exercising authority and teaching over a man. And maybe even a meek disposition yes. as opposed to boisterous. For, but also as opposed to uh, utter silence. Yes, and the word does not mean utter silence. The word is a word that means quiet disposition. I would, I'd say it's the meek and quiet spirit of First Peter three. I mean, and again, I think women, I think we probably missed that to some extent. I mean, I think. It is, I, I was talking to somebody just the other day <laughs> who was talking to me about a, well, somebody who's been their girlfriend and they're thinking about having be their girlfriend again. They don't like the fact that the girl is not outspoken enough. And I only talked about that a little bit. I said, well, maybe that's a good thing. Then. But they said, well, my mother is very outspoken. And I don't know his mother, but I know about his mother. <laughs> apparently that's the case. And I said, well, you know, that might not be the best standard to use. You know, I mean, wow. I mean, sometimes being known as, I'm somebody who, who is a force to be reckoned with, is really not the personality that I think a Christian woman ought to have. I mean, I'm not, I, I don't think this is just a personality thing, but I think the, the idea that somebody is just, dominating and forceful and assertive and you see women like that very much like that I, I think they have a hard time with this passage I think when a woman does that they are stepping outside of what they were best suited for I mean I think a man can do some nurturing I mean I think a man could raise kids but I don't think he does it as well as women do, and not as naturally, and not as helpfully. And I think the same thing's true with a woman. I'm not saying there aren't competent women. There are some women who, who lead and who are bosses who have some ability, but I don't think they do it as well as they could, and it's not as suited for them, and it's not good for them. I think we get to where you, you, you warp society long enough and we completely lose all sense of that. And I don't know, I may be wrong about this, but I wouldn't be at all surprised that some of the reason why, you know, there is so much sexual perversion, particularly like homosexuality and things like that nowadays, may very well be because people have grown up with totally confused ideas about what a man is and what a woman is. I don't mean biologically necessarily. 
And I mean, if I said that in many circles, even among Christians, they'd probably start throwing stones. But, I mean, I think that's good. So would you say it's simple to get outside of these roles? What is the what? Is it simple to get outside of these roles? I think so. What kind of applications between a husband and wife in, in other areas would you see? I mean, like with, I have a friend who lets his wife do all the banking, you know, and the accounting. And, you know, what what role, or, and then what about like nagging? And what about, you know, where the wife is always correcting the husband? Or, you know, what types of things? Well, I mean, those are some good questions. While I said everything I said, I would I would say that Proverbs 31 certainly shows that we're not dealing with a woman who doesn't involve herself in a lot of things. I don't think that we're necessarily saying, you know, a woman must never uh, involve themselves in business transactions and in working and in doing... Wow, man, probably straight one woman. She did a lot. Um, I think it's fine for a man to delegate responsibilities to his wife. I don't think the fact, if you are a leader, it doesn't mean you have to do everything. Doesn't it mean you have to micromanage? It means you're where the buck stops. I think it would be inappropriate for a man to say, all right, wife, you make all the decisions. That's not, you can't do that. But you can say, you know, you're good with this, do this. You set the parameters or whatever, it's fine for her to do the banking. You know... Oh, and that was me, by the way. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it's fine to del... I mean, you know, sometimes Sandra wants to know, you know, what did I cook for dinner? Well, I'm not unwilling to discuss that, but I don't have to make that decision. You know, it's fine for her to to have lots of areas of responsibility. It may help her grow. Uh, but I can't just say, all right, now here's an important decision. You know, I'll just throw this on to you, and if it doesn't work out well, then you're the one to blame. And I guess the point of that is just to point out some of those things. Even in the, the what's for dinner, if she decided we are now going to be vegetarians and um, we're only doing this. That's not her. Dis- that's right. She's taking control- the, the lead that is not hers. Right. But if I say, hey, you know, whatever you fix is delicious, you know, <laughs> then then I've delegated that sure. authority. Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, it's not, it's not trying to keep women from being active. I, I think, you know, I think sometimes, you know, you see some old-fashioned concepts about women's roles that are partially right and partially wrong. And we have a hard time distinguishing the right and the wrong of that. And, I mean, I think there are... When I was growing up, there were some who... Their idea was women just aren't... They can't do anything. They shouldn't do anything. They should hardly be be seen outside of their four walls of their house. Oh, I don't think that's biblical. But a woman should not be in the role of, um, you know, taking authority of, of, you know, supervising men and, and being bold, brassy, bossy kind of a person. Yes. I don't believe anything you're saying, but I have a question asking, 
does that mean that women can't teach classes in 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 a church? And of course, I answered, "Well, no." And they said, "Well, I see women teaching kids all the time." Now, what how, what what verses do you use for that? Well, here. I believe he's talking about teaching in connection with exercising authority over a man. It is not wrong for a woman to teach, period. We know there were prophetesses in the New Testament. They talked. We know that we teach when we sing, and that we're all supposed to sing. We know that the older women in Titus 2 were supposed to teach the younger women. We know that Aquila and Priscilla taught Apollos. We've got lots of passages to tell us that women can teach. It's not that they don't put your period there. They can't teach in such a way as to take authority over a man. So a woman couldn't be the teacher of the class that had men in it. Or a woman couldn't in her seat in the class be domineering over the class. She would have to maintain a role and an attitude of uh, submissiveness. I think the role of el- of an elder is a good parallel in terms of well, what is appropriate and and what is what does the Bible say versus what does history teach us? And you might you might go back to some situation that you saw and, and see elements of truth and elements of not truth there and. And, and that's where we ha- can't go back to, well, this is the way it was done here, there, or yonder in this time period. But really, what did the scriptures say? And that ought to guide the role and the, the activities of an elder. In all of these things, what we our mentality ought to be, I don't care what God says, I just want to know. I just want to know it all. I don't, I mean... You know, I don't have anything particularly to benefit one way or the other on this. It's just a matter of trying to understand what God's will is, knowing that it's best, and and then trying to follow it. So that, as long as we can keep that mentality, it makes it easier to study and really, you know, have the right attitude. <coughs> you use a statement too: "The buck stops here." Again, that carries a connotation of of ooh, that's desirable. But on what I think is what is not understood in that regard is the blame stops there too when things don't go right and it's not like it can just you know roll down to whoever's going to ultimately receive it now the buck stops there and I think I struggle with this every once in a while even as strong willed as I am the desire at times not to take the responsibility of leadership I mean, there have been times when I've sloughed off things for Sandra because I didn't want to have to be the one to take the blame, you know, and put some responsibilities of leadership on her that were not what God intended for her to have, but for me to take responsibility for. I, you know, I'm, I'm at 50 years old, I don't know that leadership is something I particularly like in a lot of situations. <laughs> a lot of times, I'd much rather somebody else was doing that. <laughs> you know, maybe when I was younger, I saw more glory in it, but anymore, I don't. <laughs> Not mostly, anyway. So, how does this affect women that aren't married? Like, they don't have a husband to be under authority. 
Well, we're all under authority before God and so forth. Um, but I would say an unmarried woman still should not take a, a role, of authoritarian role of the man. And verse 15. But women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. I think what he's doing is balancing this teaching out by showing what a woman's role is. This has been sort of all of what it isn't, but she has a special fulfilling role in the bearing of children. I don't think here he just means physically reproducing, though the fact that she is the one who does that is an interesting indication of how God sees her role. But she is the nurturer of children, as we've suggested. That, uh, you know, that's her role. That's what God wants her to do. And, but, but not in the sense that, you know, as long as she's a good mother, she'll be saved. She also has to continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I mean, she's not just saved because she's a mother, but, but you know, as she fulfills her role as a mother with faith in God and love for God and, and holiness and, and so forth. So uh, each, both, both men and women have special roles, special uh, abilities God gave them that they're the ones who should fulfill that role and do it for the Lord. Comments and questions? Stop there then. I uh, let me say just a couple of things about the trip to Brazil for a couple of minutes. Uh, I haven't seen the group since then anyway. It went really well, and I was really thankful for that. I thought a lot about the Lord's hand in that, and a lot about the prayers of brethren here, and even brethren in Brazil for the trip as well. And uh, saw that a lot. You know, a lot of things worked out really well. Lots of things, and uh, so it was really good. It was a lot better trip than what I expected overall, and some really encouraging situations. Um, told Shane a lot on the way up here, which I won't repeat all of that for you. But I, I get especially attached, and in this particular case, I was there at the end of the trip to Porto Alegre, which man, um, I spent four days there. They love to study. They're as good as you guys are with that. I mean, I study eight hours a day or so when I'm there. Um, I go ho- holiday weekends where we can have more days to study. We did Judges in detail and First Samuel 1 through 10 in four days, but one of them was a work day, so it was really three days in one night. And uh, the brethren there, I mean, they come from not just from one place even, but there's no good older people. So when I go, it's people in their teens and twenties who want to talk about everything. And I really I'm really impressed, really encouraged. I became really close to a boy who's not a Christian. His parents have forbidden him to become a Christian. I think he will anyway. He's just turned fourteen. 
really, I'm really close to him. He's who I called just now. His girlfriend broke up with him. He's, you know, I mean, really struggling with that. He's got a really bad home life. And uh, a week ago when she broke up with him, he told me he was thinking about killing himself. I don't think, he, I don't think that was real likely. But he struggles with some of those things. He struggles with a lot of things. But he's done really well in many ways, especially since I was there. He's changed a lot of things. And uh, there's just a lot of lot of encouraging things when I am there and a lot of, you know, things I'm concerned about and a lot of times when I'm really thankful to be there. Thankful for the opportunity. I mean, it's like having, well, in this particular group in Porto Alegre, I, I mean, there's probably, probably a nucleus of, uh, 20 people or 25 that I was with, probably 20. And virtually every single one of those people, they are, if they are a Christian, they are the only Christians. So it's people who come from bad backgrounds who are trying to help each other and trying to look to the Lord. And they're doing, there's some really good things going on and some things that aren't good. But I was really glad to be there. And, uh, so I appreciate your prayers. I always hate being gone. I really do. But, you know, once I'm there, I'm so thankful I went. You know so, um, for a while after I get back, I'm on the phone with them all the time, and, you know, chatting with them online and whatever, and then, too, it's hard to keep that up as I get more involved with other things. But, uh, but I appreciate your prayers and your concern for all that. So. Thank you for calling. Yeah. Mark, you want to lose your prayer? Thank you guys for all your blessings you've given us. This day, so we spend time with that family and our friends. Thank you that we got to come here tonight and stay from your word. Please help us take what we've learned and apply it to our lives. Thank you that uh, Uncle Gary's trip was productive. And please be with us and help us to always strive to teach others. And please forgive us of our sins. Help us come from our sins. Please bless us always and keep us safe. Which in Jesus' name. It's hard to summarize anyway. How do you yeah. how do you write on a page? I mean, it's hard to even talk about it. So, I mean, because yeah, I'm, I'm in a bunch of different places, yeah, yeah. different situations, and lots of. Well, it was helpful. You shared with us what your plans were. Yes. Yes. So, but, but yeah, it was good.